Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Sarah Kenzior has become one of the left's most read and most prescient voices. The St. Louis-based writer predicted the rise of Donald Trump back when most pundits thought Hillary Clinton was a shoe-in. And she was focused on his ties to Russia long before he ever asked the country to send him Clinton's emails. Some of that is due to her academic background. It's a rare journalist who has a Ph.D. Kenzia wrote her doctoral thesis on dissidents, pushing back on the authoritarian leader of Uzbekistan. But she also credits her longtime residence in St. Louis as helping her understand America in a way the New York-based media simply can't. She titled her 2015 ebook The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from a Forgotten America. It became such a must-read, her publisher released a paper version three years later, and it was a best seller. Now she has a new book, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. And she's here to talk with us about it. Sarah Kenzier, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Sarah, I was struck by the media materials for this book. They describe you as, quote, someone who has always been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Quote, she worked at the New York Daily News when print media was on the brink of collapse, lived in New York City when the Twin Towers fell, and in St. Louis when Michael Brown was shot, and studied media and authoritarianism right as Trump emerged using the very same tactics as post-Soviet dictators. It's a it's a great summary of, of kind of a, a pessimistic um, series of things that happen. But I have to ask, does releasing a book in the middle of a pandemic also qualify? Oh, of course. Of course, the book comes out during a pandemic. Um, And yeah, you know, honestly, I probably shouldn't admit this. When I signed the book contract, I was almost laughing. I was like, there's not going to be books in 2020. There's not going to be bookstores, freedom of speech. I always thought that those things were tentative. Uh, I didn't realize it would be quite as literal. Um, And, and, you know, obviously, I'm as preoccupied with this tragedy as anybody, uh, you know, in our region or anywhere else is. It's it's horrible. Uh, And I do feel like my book sheds some light on the kind of social and uh, economic and political conditions that have made it as bad as it is. But, you know, this is a, a public health catastrophe. It's a human tragedy. And, you know, I hope... I hope folks are staying home and and staying as safe as they can. I mean, beyond just the the very horrible things that people are dealing with, I mean, this is obviously no time to go on a book tour. I imagine this has probably changed your plans for the next couple weeks pretty dramatically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The book tour is uh, canceled, or I should say postponed. Um, You know, if we manage to get out of this, if if stores are open again to the public, um, I am hoping to go on tour. I'm hoping to do an event with Left Bank Books, who have been so good and um, so supportive and are still selling books uh, online and doing curbside pickup and all that. So I encourage people to, uh, you know, support your St. Louis uh, local bookstores. But yeah, you know, of course, things are in, uh, they're in incredible disarray for everyone. You know, as I'm talking to you, I have two kids. I'm allegedly homeschooling um, at the moment, just like a lot of people working from home. Um, and as you know, your your prior interviewees have said, there are plenty of people in far worse straits than me. Uh, people who don't have the choice to stay home. Um, people who have to work in you know in hospitals and service worker jobs. People who are incarcerated. So I hope uh, their needs are prioritized. And you know, reading your book, it's interesting. I think so many books probably feel out of date right now. So much in American life has changed so fast. I did not feel that way reading your book at all. I felt like this book almost helped me understand how we got to the point that we're in. I feel like so many never-Trumpers said, well, you know, he may be incompetent, but our institutions are still strong. America will be fine. You never felt that way. No, I never did feel that way. Um, You know, I feel like he covers 
you know, what, what people see as incompetence is actually malice. And he covers, he covers up crime with scandal. And he's been doing that for 40 years. And it's not just Trump. It's not like Trump is some sort of geopolitical mastermind. He's backed by a large cohort of people who are using him as a vehicle for their own interests. And that ranges from uh, organized crime and kleptocrats to theocrats to ideological extremists to white supremacists, uh, they have all seen Trump as a means to their own ends. He set out with the intention of collapsing this country. You know, I have firsthand quotes from him going back to the 1980s about his intent to destroy the American economy, about his connection to the Kremlin, but more specifically to transnational organized crime, of which the Kremlin is just a part. Uh, you know, this is a long, ongoing story. I wrote this as a history in part because I knew, you know, of course, histories don't get out of date, but also because this is an untold story. This is a buried story. This is a story that other journalists have tried to bring to the fore, you know, some of whom didn't live to tell the tale. And I quote from them extensively uh, in my own book. And I hope that people do uh, get to know the truth, because if anything, you know, we are at the crisis point right now. We are at a point of no return. And while we all have to suffer, uh, you know, due to the coronavirus pandemic, due to the effect it's had on our, our social and economic life, uh, if we don't understand the nature of that suffering, if we don't understand what their goal is and continue to mistake it for negligence instead of a purposeful act, uh, then we're not going to be able to, to fight it effectively. But one of the ironies I'm, I'm feeling right now is you've long warned about the rise of authoritarianism here and, and Trump as a part of that. But if anything, it seems right now like so many people are longing for a stronger response from the federal government and they want more freedoms to be taken away right now because they're terrified, and I think rightly so, of, of this disease. Is that something where we should resist this impulse um, because of the guy who's in charge? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a very hard road to walk because on one hand, we have a genuine public health crisis. We have a virus, um, you know, that is deadly, that's easily spread, um, you know, that we need to distance ourselves from in order to not overwhelm our medical system. You know, we owe our medical workers that. On the other side, we have a kleptocratic, sadistic federal government that wants to exploit this crisis for their own gain, for financial gain, to entrench their power, to consolidate autocracy. We're seeing leaders around the world doing the same thing. We're seeing Viktor Orban in Hungary doing it, uh, Putin in Russia, Netanyahu in Israel. You know, this is a classic move. No autocrat wastes a crisis. And that is what the Trump administration is doing. Uh, and they're doing it in a twofold way. They're exploiting it for short-term financial gain, um, you know, through the medical industry, through buying up supplies, refusing to give them to the states and to the citizens who need them. But I think they have a longer-term gain, which is basically disaster capitalism. It's allowing the country and the system to collapse so that they can profit off it and also rebuild it in their own very narrow image of what an American is. And that will entail a greater suppression of personal freedom. And I am very concerned about that. Um, you know, they really have those of us who value both freedom and safety in a bind, because on one hand, we have to work to protect our families, protect our communities. And that requires a level of trust in our officials at a time where trust 
uh, at least with the federal government, I think is unwarranted. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very difficult. We should certainly be pushing for as much transparency as possible. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of people on Twitter say Sarah Kenzier called this two years ago, and this was on Friday when the federal government announced it's not issuing new passports. Do you see that as a necessary step to fighting the pandemic? Or do you think that was an overreach by the federal government right now? I think that right now the Trump administration is going to try to pass all sorts of, um, you know, abhorrent and awful policies to curtail our freedoms and rights under the guise of the chaos of the pandemic and not renewing passports, you know, which is something where you mail in your passport and then somebody mails it back to you. It's not something where you need to be in person, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is, is one of those things. And so, you know, yes, I think that they're trying to curtail our mobility. Um, I don't think that that's an effective way to to do that in terms of safety rules, in terms of discouraging people from international travel, which is genuinely a bad idea at this time. We're also seeing them repeal um, environmental protections. We're seeing them attack Native American rights. We're seeing the Department of Justice say that they now have the right to detain any citizen indefinitely for any reason. Those are the sorts of autocratic maneuvers that they're doing. I always worried about our passports, um, both in terms of just having the freedom to travel, but also because it's a form of identification that can be used to travel domestically when we're in the middle of this real ID mess. And I guess a couple of days ago, they've now pushed back the deadline for that. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, I, I've studied authorita- authoritarian states my whole life. And one of the things they try to do is, um, you know, basically sh- redefine what citizenship is, uh, change who gets to be a citizen, who's ascribed the full rights of a citizen. Our own country, of course, has this history, you know, almost always race-based, you know, we're black Americans, but we're not full citizens, Native Americans, Japanese uh, during World War II. So it's not like it hasn't happened here. Um, but what I think the Trump administration is doing is engaging in those sorts of practices on a much wider scale with a much wider uh, set of targets, because they view human life uh, and our freedoms as disposable. We heard from Jamie, um, one of our listeners via email, even before the show she wrote in, and she asked, could you ask Sarah to speak more about the issue with the federal government suspending the issuance of passports? What's the purpose of this? Are we ultimately not going to be able to travel internationally or only on Trump's whim? What about interstate travel restrictions? And Jamie adds, thank you for interviewing Sarah. She's about the only person I trust to tell the truth about what's going on and where we're heading. Uh, thoughts on on what the purpose of this is or the the sort of impact it will have, this passport issue. Um, I mean, in addition to what I said, yes, I, I do think it could potentially affect international and domestic travel because it's the signifier that, you know, you are able to go from place A to place B. It's difficult uh, to assess this during a pandemic where there's a legitimate reason not to be moving around, you know, where we should be sheltering in place. But, um, you know, there were issues with uh, people not being given their passports that well preceded this crisis that go back several years. People whose birth certificates were suddenly deemed illegitimate. Um, You know, you're seeing struggles among immigrants uh, and migrants to either obtain or keep their citizenship. Uh, There's been a lot of fear about deportations. And this is a very racist, xenophobic administration. And so, you know, some of this is indeed about travel. It's about the freedom to go from one country to another, uh, and sometimes, you know, to fly from one American city to another. But it's more about uh, identity and who's viewed Mm -hmm. as a citizen and whose rights are at risk. 
Now, you're talking about this as being part of Trump's plan and, and, and being good for him, this, this overall pandemic. But up until the pandemic tanked the economy, he was looking like he had a pretty good chance at, at getting reelected. Don't, doesn't this spoil his chances in so many ways? Well, I wasn't expecting a free and fair election in 2020. And, you know, that's not to say we shouldn't fight for one. We absolutely should be fighting for a free and fair election. And I think voting by mail um, is one way to do that now. But I expected that there was going to be manipulation of the election like there was in 2016. Everything from domestic voter suppression uh, with harsh new voter ID laws to foreign interference to hackable machines, to Trump simply refusing to concede. The Republican Party has not been acting like a party over which the public has any leverage. They have routinely proposed and implemented wildly unpopular policies, and Trump's own personal approval rating has been record low. There has never been a president this unpopular in American history. And so I thought his chances in a free and fair election were actually pretty low. I don't think that, you know, obviously he has a base, he has, he has folks who like him, um, but I think that that's not the majority of the country, and he would have lost regardless of who the Democratic candidate was. Uh, whether he would actually leave if he lost um, would be another question. Whether we would actually have a legitimate election be another question. Uh, and with mm-hmm. coronavirus, that's very much up in the air just because of the mechanics of handling an election when you have a, you know, a pandemic. We're talking to Sarah Kenzior. She's the author of Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. And we did want to mention tomorrow night, um, Sarah will be doing her book launch conversation with St. Louis Public Radio's own Jason Rosenbaum that was supposed to be in a, a very large venue with a lot of people there in person. It's now happening on Twitter. And if you go to Sarah's Twitter account, at Sarah Kenzior, at 7 p.m., you can follow along. Uh, we need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis. Is Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're talking to author Sarah Kenzior. She's a St. Louis-based journalist, although she writes mostly for national outlets. Her previous book, The View from Flyover Country, was a New York Times bestseller. And her new book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. And if you want to join our conversation, if you have a question or comment for Sarah Kenzior, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on Air. Now, Sarah, your book is about Donald Trump, but you write so lucidly about Missouri. Uh, The first chapter is almost entirely about Missouri. It's called The Bellwether of American Decline. And we'd asked if you could read a passage from that today that particularly struck me. I'm wondering if you could do that for us now. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Should I go ahead? Yeah, go for it. Okay. I've lived in St. Louis for almost my entire adult life. But in my early 20s, I briefly lived in two former imperial capitals, Vienna, Austria, where the Habsburgs held sway over Europe and where Hitler was rejected from art school, and Istanbul, Turkey, where countless empires rose and fell. Those are cities where history feels palpable, in palaces and plague columns, museums and mosques. The triumph and tragedy of the imperial past is their calling card, dealt into a new hand, one that beckons tourists to contemplate their own time and the way the world comes undone. St. Louis is not dissimilar, though few few recognize 
Imperial grandeur lurks in every building left behind by the 1904 World's Fair, held when St. Louis was the place to be, the fourth largest city in America. It also haunts the city in less sought-out relics. If visitors follow the standard recommendations, they see the arch and the zoo and the cardinals. If they turn off the tourist trail, they stumble into what looks like an urban war zone of gutted 19th and early 20th century buildings. They wonder what happened to make our city look this way, failing to grasp that what happened in St. Louis was nothing. Our war wasn't lost, but loss. There was no attack, just abandonment and apathy. Here the world ended, as St. Louis-raised poet T.S. Eliot wrote, not with a bang, but a whimper. St. Louis's history and Missouri's history is not well known outside the state. Perhaps that's how gatekeepers want it. An empire, even a fallen one, should have some glamour, some command, not be rooted in the region disparagingly called flyover country. But it was in St. Charles, Missouri, where explorers Lewis and Clark set off on their quest of westward, sorry, of westward imperialism, Hannibal, Missouri, where Mark Twain's trenchant tales of racism were conceived and set. Marceline, Missouri, where a young Walt Disney envisioned his fantasy empire in a backyard farmhouse. And St. Louis, Missouri, where black musicians like Scott Joplin and Chuck Berry pioneered quintessentially American genres like ragtime and blues and rock. There is no such thing as a real or fake America but it is hard to ignore the significance of Missouri in shaping national culture, national dialects, national expectations, and real and fictional national icons, and the significance of its significance being ignored. You have to reconcile with an awful lot if you dare reconcile with Missouri. Missouri, with its little Dixie slavery relics sprawling across the upper half, Missouri, where Native Americans trod the trail of tears across the lower half. Missouri, which is so conflicted about whether it is northern or southern that residents cannot agree on whether to pronounce the state Missouri or Missouri, prompting state politicians to engage in the quintessential Missouri Act, the compromise that satisfies no one. Today, Missouri lives the legacy of that compromise. The state remains divided by race, class, in a rural versus urban landscape. But what most folks agree on, regardless of their background, is the pervasiveness of pain. We are held together by the recognition that we are being torn apart. I, I found that passage just so striking. Um, and, and not long after that, you write of St. Louis, you are surrounded by the sense, meaning surrounded by it here in St. Louis, that everything can come undone at any time and no one will fix it when it falls. Do you think the rest of America is, is getting a taste of that right now? Yeah, it's, you know, it's something to read this now um, in the midst of what does feel like national collapse into a, a larger degree global collapse. Um, you know, and, and part of what it's like, of course, to live in St. Louis is to be constantly aware of that fragility, you know, to see um, the remnants of times before, to see how quickly things can fall apart. I didn't imagine, uh, you know, I think quite such a dramatic fall as I do right now. But, yeah, I think um, the nation, unfortunately, is getting a taste of, you know, our regular pain. I 
once again, uh, the bellwether of decline, as I declared in the book. Um, but this is a hardship that everyone shares. And, you know, one of the lessons I tried to impart in this book and in my other writing is the need for people to pull together um, to support each other, to try to you know, reach out over these barriers. You know, it's not some kind of romance. It's not something to kind of dwell in and think, you know, oh, the ruins of the past or, you know, these wonderful glories. It's hardship. It's pain. Uh, and I think people are feeling that pain, um, you know, in a really urgent and indirect way right now. And how we get past that, I guess, you know, that remains to be Seen. We have a number of callers who are, are dying to interact with you, but I did have one. I wanted to bring this back to your book's thesis because you're not just diagnosing decline here. You really um, place it very directly as being the fault of this international cabal. Help us understand how the problems we have in St. Louis connect um, in your book to Roy Cohn, Russian mobsters, sort of the pre-presidential Donald Trump. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a complicated story, but, you know, as I've said many times, and as some signs across St. Louis have said many times, this is a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government. And it didn't just emerge with Donald Trump. This is not some new thing that sprang up in 2016. This is the result of four decades of, you know, a, a combination of just the worst people in the world, dictators, mobsters, disaster capitalists. Uh, kleptocrats banding together for their own agenda. And as this happened, uh, American institutions decline. And everyone has seen, you know, the results of these decline. We've had two wars. We've had a horrible recession. We now have another depression. Uh, but there are people who profited from that. There are people who capitalized on that. And those are the people who are in Trump's administration. And those are the people who propelled his career. And a lot of them are also in media, whitewashing this story, sugarcoating it, selling it to the masses, uh, diluting our ideas of truth and fact, whether through reality TV or through propaganda. And so it's, it's a complicated story, and I did try to, you know, weave it into, um, you know, one long sorted tale. So I, I encourage folks to check that out, I guess. And, and yes, that book is hiding in plain sight if you want to hear how Sarah weaves it all together. I want to go to the phone lines. Uh, Pat is calling from Brentwood. Um, Pat, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Yeah, I wanted to ask, um, you, Sarah, you made a comment about um, Trump's approval ratings uh, have been historically low, but in this coronavirus issue, his, his ratings are going up and they've never been higher. And mm. I wonder if you can speak to that, please. Pat, thank you for that question. Um, Sarah? Um, this is about the allegation that Trump's ratings are going up through polls. I didn't completely hear. Yeah, Pat was saying that um, because of coronavirus, Trump's ratings have never been higher. People seem to approve of, of how he's handling this. And you'd mentioned that his ratings had been low prior to this. What do you make of yeah, that? Yeah, I mean... His ratings are still pretty low, especially during a time like this where, you know, traditionally, for example, after 9-11, Bush's ratings went through the roof because people want to rally around a leader. They want to trust uh, their leader. That hasn't exactly happened for him. For him. Uh, you know, they're now going down again. Uh, they briefly went up, I think, in reaction. But one thing I've always wondered about is, you know, under testimony, Michael Cohen, uh, one of the mobsters who worked for Trump and was his lawyer, said that Trump fabricates polls. And we know that he used the media to fabricate polls. And we know that he loves quantitative data. He loves to give out this, you know, numbers like this many people love me and this many people approve of me, because that allows people to participate in his movement and not feel alone in that, not feel like they're maybe doing something bad. And 
always wonder about the validity of these kind of polls and how they're conducted. But, you know, of course, there is going to be some effects where, you know, as a country, we'd love to unite. We'd love to be able to get through this together. And traditionally, rallying around the president has been a way to do that. And I'm not sure that's, you know, that's not going to go over way overnight, uh, you know, even with this president. So we've been talking about some really heavy stuff today, and I know that's kind of your brand, and I don't mean that in a, a pejorative way at all. Like, you you see bad things coming, and, and man, in so many cases, uh, you've been correct in what you've predicted. But there are some moments in your book that also have a little light in them, and um, you write about how much you love taking road trips, and I, I absolutely loved your aside about taking your kids to the Gerald Ford Presidential Library <laughs> in Grand Rapids. Did you really tell your kid that Gerald Ford was an undercover wizard? Of course I did. How else do you get a six-year-old and a three-year-old to go to the Gerald Ford Museum? <laughs> and did they, they find evidence of his wizardry? Oh, yeah, yeah. They found, I think, it maybe a gavel that he had or that a friend of his had, and that was his wand. And, you know, they found some other thing he owned that was the shield. I mean, you know, people will think of uh, anything. And so, yeah, my four children have been dragged to, like, every you know, a presidential library, presidential museum that I could find. In part because, you know, I love history and I love doing that sort of thing. But I also like educating them, and uh, except for possibly Gerald Ford, there's usually a lot of interesting things to find um, in, in these uh, in these museums. And, you know, that's something I certainly miss now. That That's a hard thing to kind of cope with uh, in terms of this cabin fever we're all experiencing is the the loss of our access to, you know, historical institutions and whatnot. So on that note, you know, I really hope people continue to support those when they open up because we're all going to go through a rough economic time. Um, but I think they're, they're very important. I thought it was interesting. You wrote that all your recent vacations have been to national parks. And, and that seemed somewhat surprising for somebody who really doesn't believe in American exceptionalism. Um, how do you square your love for this park system, which really comes across in this book, uh, with how you feel about the flaws that are just rooted in America for you? Um, you know, where there's a saying that the national park system was America's greatest idea, and I think that that's true. Um, you know, and these are places not just of, you know, natural beauty, but of history. You know, there are places like Mesa Verde that are uh, sacred Native American sites. There are other places like Bears Ears that Trump is trying to destroy. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, I love the national park system. I love being outdoors. I love the Missouri State Parks. Um, I love all of that. I don't think it's necessarily synonymous with exceptionalism because I love visiting those sorts of places in other countries uh, as well. Um, you know, at heart, like I'm a conservationalist and somebody who loves the natural world. I find it, you know, relaxing and, and beautiful and something that we should be fighting to preserve and appreciate. Uh, I definitely miss it. I'm looking, you know, wistfully at pictures of places that I've been um, and hoping to, you know, to return to them soon. Something else I'd, I'd be remiss not to ask you about today. I know when you signed this book deal, it was for a two book deal. And now that the whole <laughs> world has sort of been turned upside down, do you know yet what the focus is of the next one? Uh, no, I don't know about that. We're going to have to see. I mean, you know, when my agent proposed that, I, I literally was laughing. I was like, you guys are the most optimistic people I've ever met in my life. But, you know, i, I got to earn a living. Uh, I guess one thing I can announce, and you're getting the scoop here, is that Ooh. my partner on my podcast, um, Andrea Chalupa, and I were writing a, a graphic novel off for Macmillan um, about dictatorship aimed at a broad audience, including, like, middle school, high school age 
readers uh, to teach people how dictatorships are formed, uh, how they take charge, how they maintain their power. It's our first time writing a graphic novel, but I'm excited. Uh, you know, I have kids of my own. They love graphic novels. I think it's another way to learn. So in addition to this other book that I'll be writing, which will be a, you know, a traditional book, we'll have that coming out um, probably in, in 2021 as well. Wow, that's great. So a, a graphic novel about dictatorships. This sounds like something that is, <laughs> I mean, I just love it. Uh, and it's, it's great to see you branching out into even more directions. So uh, Sarah oh, yeah. Kenzier, I want to I thank you so much for joining us today today. Okay, thank you. And just a reminder, Sarah's new book is Hidden in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. Her book launch conversation is happening tomorrow on Twitter at 7 p.m. You can go to her Twitter account. That's at Sarah Kenzior. Sarah, can people also go to your website for that or they really need to go to Twitter? I think you need to go to Twitter. We're still working out the technical details, but it should be like streamed live through Twitter with Jason Rosenbaum uh, in his own house, secluded from, from the world. So we'll see how this works. Uh, the pandemic special. So yeah, tune in. Uh, thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.